So we'll say good morning to the kids, and it's always wonderful to have some time together. I'm going to be asking you about sermons today, and I have two questions. We'll come back to them. One is, how long do you think is a long sermon? And the second one is, how long do you think is a short sermon? When I was doing my internship over at St. Paul in Oakland, there was a gentleman who would always, every Sunday that I preached, he would come up to me at the end of church when I was standing at the back greeting people, and he had a stopwatch. And he would show me, this is true, he would show me, never made a comment, that if it was 11 minutes, 12 minutes, I don't think I ever went over 13 minutes. And from the look in his eye that one Sunday, I think that we'll call him Bob, thought that that was a long sermon. So i just like to ask you, what do you think? How long is a long sermon? Uh, I would say 15 minutes. I would say 15 minutes, too. I would agree with that. My dad was <laughs> for 20 minutes, but then we didn't have communion every Sunday like we do now. So, yeah, probably a long sermon. Over at St. Paul, that guy who was timing me, I'm sure he would have thought 15 minutes was a long, a long sermon. What do you think is a short sermon? Probably 10 minutes. Ten minutes would be a short sermon. Yep. Well, I think about eight. Okay, maybe eight, maybe seven. Do I hear six? <laughs> That's a short sermon, isn't it? Yeah. Today. I mean, the shortest sermon possible is one minute. That's right. And you know what? Or one That's second. just about what Jesus did. He had a one minute or less sermon. And I think on the leaflet that you have on the front page over there towards the left, there's a way of finding out the words that were Jesus' shortest sermon. In about four weeks, we're going to hear from Luke probably the longest sermon that Luke gives us of Jesus. But today, we have the shortest sermon. And I'll let you work out what those words are. But it has to do with the fact that Jesus reveals himself, uh, it's an epiphany, to the folks back home. So... Let's see if you can figure out from the gospel reading today and from the leaflet that you have, what was Jesus' shortest sermon? And I think it didn't even last a minute. So, yeah, like 30 seconds. Shall we, shall we pray together briefly? Dear Jesus, we ask for your presence, whether the pastor has a short sermon or a long sermon. Give us good attention, and most of all, give us kind hearts so that we can keep our eyes on you. Amen. You probably have noticed that the emphasis in our readings and in our prayers today is on God's word. So I'd like to open with a prayer that my dad so often began his sermons with. Let us pray. Divine instructor, gracious Lord, be thou forever near. Teach us to love thy sacred word and view our Savior there. Amen. So today, Luke gives us an account of homecoming, with far more detail in Luke than is provided in any of the other gospel accounts. So let's remember, in this narrative, Luke has already told us about that peak experience of the Lord's baptisms, you know, how the heaven opens and there's a voice from on high and the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. 
And then after that, there's the plunge into the wilderness and an encounter with evil incarnate. We will hear about that during Lent. This evil incarnate is actually able to quote scripture to Jesus. Often, it seems to me, in our own life experience, a high point is followed by a real challenge, a time of testing. A peak is followed by a trough. We'll see that as we move through today's and next Sunday's gospel lessons. Thomas Gomes writes that this account in Luke is something like a play in several acts. The first act, which we hear today, goes really, really well. Maybe too well. So you might imagine what's coming. But that's a spoiler alert, and you'll have to come back next Sunday for the rest of the story. But Jesus, having endured temptation in the wilderness, returns to the region of Galilee, Luke tells us, and his teaching is well-received, really well-received, praised by everyone. And the word that is used for praise is where we get our word doxology. Then Jesus goes home. This is centuries after Heraclitus had said, you can never step twice into the same river. And many centuries before Thomas Wolfe wrote, you can't go home again. Actually, you can go back to the same location, can't you? But don't be surprised if the place you think you're coming back to hasn't existed for several decades. But Jesus comes home to Nazareth. Nazareth was no small place. At that time, it might have had as many as 20,000 people, which would be a big town in the state where I come from. There were three caravan routes leading around Nazareth, going to the north, to the south, to Egypt, to the east, to Arabia. It was a cosmopolitan spot, and people probably thought pretty highly of themselves. That's often what happens. So Jesus goes home to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went as his custom was. Did you catch that, Luke said? As his custom was, Jesus went to the synagogue. Now, Jesus may not have always agreed with the teachings that he heard in the synagogue. He may not have found it convenient. He may not have cared for the speakers, or for the lighting, or for the seating arrangements. Maybe there was inadequate parking, but in any case, Jesus went to the synagogue as his custom was. So far, nothing too unusual about that. The phrase, as his custom was, occurs in Luke's gospel only twice, here in today's lesson, and when Jesus leaves the upper room to go with his disciples over to the Mount of Olives to pray, as his custom was. Both of these contexts, then, are associated with prayer, which, remember, occurs so often in Luke's gospel. Luke will often portray Jesus as going off to pray by himself or praying with his disciples in other contexts. Then the pace of our gospel lesson picks up, doesn't it? Luke says that Jesus stands up to read. I don't know if any of you have been to services at a synagogue. I have had the experience only twice, both times at the bat mitzvahs, of daughters of dear friends of mine back in Connecticut, friends who are members of a Reconstructionist synagogue in Middletown. Based on only these two experiences, I can tell you it's significant, 
it's really significant when you stand up to read. There's a person on either side of you to make sure you don't misread the Hebrew, and you don't touch the scroll from which you're reading. There's a slender stylist called a yad, yad, and on the end of the stylus, there's a shape like a small right hand with an index finger extended to help you keep your place as you read. In the synagogue where I was attending in Connecticut, the rabbi's wife had the reputation of being a wonderful lector. When she stood up to read on those days that I was there, there was this appreciative rustle of excitement throughout the congregation. And my friend Lisa leaned over to me and whispered, Barbara reads beautifully. It was a big deal. So Jesus stands up to read. In Jesus' day, an invitation to preach could be extended by any of the presiding elders to any competent member of the synagogue. So Jesus, having come home with a great reputation, gets the invitation to read. The law, or the Pentateuch, was thoroughly read in the synagogue over a course of a three-year cycle, just like us. They had a lectionary. But for the prophets, the reader could pick the selection. That's important, isn't it, for today's lesson? So Jesus was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah probably because he had asked the attendant to give it to him. Jesus had intention here. He had an announcement to make to the folks back home. So Jesus is given the scroll. It's not a book, even though various texts will translate it as such, because that's, it uses a word where we get our word for bibliography. But it's almost certainly a rolled-up papyrus. And then, to add to the suspense, Jesus unrolls the scroll to find the right spot. Remember, there's no chapters and verses. None of that. People have it memorized, and so Jesus rolls the scroll to the right spot. And must have then been the right passage that he eventually arrives at, and he begins to read a passage that has sometimes been characterized by commentators as poetry, and the poetry sometimes has been titled, Glad Tidings of Salvation to Israel. Glad Tidings of Salvation to Zion. Jesus reads that poetry with all of its active verbs. Did you catch that? Anointed, sent, bring good news, proclaim release, recovery and freedom for the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's an extremely active passage, which is to say the year of the Lord's favor means that Messiah has come and brings in a new era the kingdom, the reign of God. Jesus rolls up the scroll. I think of the expectant silence in the congregation when he does that. Then he hands the scroll to the attendant and sits down. I imagine people were thinking, he reads beautifully. I wonder what he's going to have to say. Remember, in that time, you stood to read, you sat down to teach. So Jesus sits down, and all eyes are intently on him. The poet Mary Oliver said, Attention is the beginning of devotion. 
attention is the beginning of devotion. In that phrase, all eyes are intently on him. Greek has a number of verbs for to see, but this uses a word that is derived from the noun intend. It can be translated to fix one's eyes upon. It's used only 14 times in the whole Greek, Greek scriptures, and of those times, 12 are Luke. All eyes are fixed on Jesus with intent. I imagine people thinking in the congregation, he reads beautifully. Now what's he going to have to say? Then Jesus says simply, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The shortest sermon that we have. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And with that, our gospel lesson ends. What's our question? Always, when you hear the gospel read, what do we always want to ask ourselves? What does this mean? In light of this gospel, how then shall we live? Or, now what? Well, to quote Mary Oliver once again, I have no answers, but I have some suggestions. First of all, we might take the example of the crowd in the synagogue that day when all eyes were fixed on Jesus. My dad had a saying, I think I've said it here before. He used it often in his sermons. He would say, whatever gets your attention gets you. He said it so often that it annoyed my mother. So he would say it again the next Sunday. Whatever gets your attention gets you. He would say, our attention, and Dad was right, our attention functions like a magnifying glass. What we focus upon gets bigger and is enlarged. To add to that, something my dad never knew, the idea of mirror neurons, and this is important. It's a finding from neuroscience. It says essentially that when you watch something, there are motor or movement neurons that participate in the action that you are observing, that imitate, actually, in a subliminal way, what's being observed. You've probably heard about mirror neurons in the news or in some report. In fact, mirror neurons operate for our hearing as well, so that, for instance, if we hear the sound of somebody opening a can of pop, our motor neurons are slightly subliminally potentiated, like we're doing the same thing. But if we hear a dripping faucet, there's nothing that activates our mirror neurons. I think this is unbelievably significant. Sisters and brothers, dear siblings, then, be alert and watchful regarding what you're looking at and what you're hearing. Be alert and vigilant and aware, because when you watch, you do. We are being profoundly influenced. And so like we say to the kids, we better make good choices. Accordingly, as the old hymn says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow 
strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we fix our eyes upon Jesus. We practice his presence, not just in the sacrament, but in our hearts. We look upon him intently, such that when we are diverted away, there remains on our hearts that image imprinted, that countenance visualized. We remember Jesus. And as one old commentator wrote years ago, to remember Jesus is to find it harder to be selfish or cruel or merciless. To remember Jesus is to have something in us so drawn to him that we are more eager to be generous, understanding, compassionate, and kind. Does that sound like us? Generous, understanding, compassionate, and kind. If we remember Jesus, we will do as he did. In and through the Holy Spirit, we will proclaim to a dying world the good news. Did you hear it? Release, recovery, freedom, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says to the crowd at the synagogue, and he says to us today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that verb has been fulfilled, that's in the perfect tense in Greek. And my lexicon says this, the perfect tense conveys the double notion of an action terminated in past time and its effect existing in the present. The perfect tense conveys the idea, the double notion of an action terminated in past time and its effect existing in the present. And maybe you're thinking, oh, well, Jim, you don't want to make a big deal over some point of grammar, do you? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. The effects last into the present and I dare say into the future. The inaugural address of Jesus, this shortest sermon made so long ago, continues to influence us in this very instant. It was in the beginning, is now, and it ever shall be. The year of the Lord's favor, then, sisters and brothers, is in this moment. May we keep our eyes on him. May we follow in his steps. May we do for others as he did, and thereby may his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 